You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob O'Sell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we're very excited to sit down and talk with Tejas Kumar about the future of databases, DevRel, and so much more. Tejas is an international keynote speaker, angel investor, an advisor, uh, and also the director of developer relations at Zeta. Tejas, how are you doing today? Hey, Rob. It's nice to be here. Uh, I'm doing good. I have some, some coffee right here, and it's a, it's a good day so far. There we go. Yeah, that is the start of every great day. Now, where I wanted to start with you today, I think we're going to be talking about database. We're going to be talking about so much more. But what's fascinating to me is I know that you've recently been traveling uh, to places like, uh, was it, in React India and, and JSConf Budapest uh, and getting a chance to, to get out to conferences again. And, you know, I think that this is a, an interesting ecosystem right now for conference attendees, for people that work in DevRel. Uh, we had the opportunity on this podcast to talk to different DevRel people throughout the pandemic to kind of talk about how DevRel was changing and where people kind of saw it going uh, in the following years. And while we certainly can't call what's going on right now normal uh, or say that everything is, is, is done, we certainly are entering what appears to be a new phase, especially when it comes to live events. And so I'm kind of curious, like, as you've gotten back to these events, how have they felt for you uh, in comparison to kind of where things were? And, and maybe, you know, how do you see DevRel uh, and, and your approach to it for, for Zeta or just in general kind of changing now that we've sort of entered this phase uh, of the pandemic? Yeah. Um, it's, so I've been traveling and speaking at conferences, like, since 2018. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like we're we're going full circle in the best possible way. Like, you know, pre-pandemic, like traveling was the thing. Like the, the notion of an online conference was rare. Um, and and then, you know, of course, we had the, the, the pandemic. Um, we still have the pandemic to some degree. And, you know, online conferences were dominant uh, during the pandemic, which for me as a speaker, and I know a lot of speakers who will just say online conferences were a real pain. Um, to speak at because you get all of the stress without much of the rest like like you don't really get to travel you don't get to meet a new community like face to face in the flesh and listen to people's pain points and like there's a whole experience with traveling to communities to talk to them above and beyond just the technical content you'll do in a talk right people call this the hallway track at conferences where you just kind of hang out and uh, just you know talk about whatever um, that was missing. And so instead, we prepare all this content, get on a Zoom call with people whose cameras and microphones are usually off. And you're like, are you even here? Am I talking to the voice? It's a whole mess as a speaker. Um, but I'm I'm sensitive to the good side of it, too, which, you know, because of the virtual format, there's a lot of underrepresented countries that that could not travel, that now have a way to get in touch with the larger tech community and and learn things and so on. It, it's 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 the pandemic has been awesome for accessibility to technical conference content for a lot of people, and that is a blessing. That's the silver lining, right? Um, so it's you know as with most things, it's not binary. It's not a mixed bag, um, or rather, it is a mixed bag. There's some good, there's some bad. Um, but I, that's the biggest change was there was not so much of virtual stuff before. In fact, how things are now is kind of like how they were before the pandemic started. Um, except how things are now is that, but amplified that, but if I can say that, but on steroids, right? Because like we have the in-person stuff, which is way more, there's a lot of oomph behind it because I feel like we're making up for lost time. That's the vibe I get. A lot of people are like, yes, let's have an in-person conference and let's have a hundred people and let's have a speaker dinner and let's have this and let's have, it's just oversaturated with in-person stuff which is a beautiful thing because it shows that we've missed each other. And I like that. So it's like how it was before the pandemic, but more saturated with people. And there's also greater saturation of just like online events. So I feel like it may be controversial and maybe not, but I feel comfortable in saying that, you know, at this stage of the pandemic where it's less um, severe than earlier because we have vaccines and stuff, I'd say DevRel has come back stronger um, than before. That's really interesting. And, you know, I, I think we feel this 
in many different ways. Now, I know that uh, remote working has been an amazing blessing for the industry in many ways. Uh, it, it just has innumerable benefits. I was, we were doing remote working at, at this dot prior to even the pandemic. So this was a reality for us ahead of that. So we knew some of these benefits, but that being said, I think it's a similar functionality there. I, I, I think that anybody that has these kind of experiences would recognize at least at some front that there is there are elements of being in an office with your peers that are hard to replace. Um, and that, you know, I think one of the things that as a as a workforce we're going to deal with as well is now that we've allowed in remote and we have that, and now we have two sort of viable options, the remote world and the in-person world, how will we balance those two things? Some workplaces are going like, like nothing ever happened, force everybody back into the office, it's business as usual. Other places are saying we'll never go back to the office and we'll always be remote. Um, and some are trying to, to move forward with some sort of hybridized approach. And I think that is going to be super interesting about uh, in-person events, about conferences and, and similar is, you know, hopefully all these lessons learned, these technologies that have been developed, these startups that have been founded around making online events, hopefully we don't just turn the page and all of that disappears. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I think you're right. I, I think people are very hungry for these events, whether they be local events for your local meetups. I mean, I haven't been to a local meetup in, in, in two plus years. I, I, that is absolutely mind blowing to me. Like there are just people from the local tech community that I realized I just haven't talked to in, in forever. And and I think what's lost in a lot of that is just you're not inspiring each other. You're not planting those seeds, those seeds of curiosity. I, I find almost interestingly, I watch less online content now than I did prior to the pandemic, even though more of it is online, because I'm less inspired by people to go check out stuff related to it. And maybe that's unique to me, but I found that sort of be counterintuitive as I've consumed almost less online content in the pandemic world, even though more of it is available. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with that. I don't know if you've encountered the same, but. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate. I mean, one great example of this is Quick. Um, have you heard of Quick? It's a, so, so Quick yeah, is, is an amazing, powerful tool that in my opinion has the potential to like change the way we build like hydration UIs, right? Web apps, um, very powerful. I had no idea what it was. Uh, through any type of online content. But the way I heard about it was by talking to Mishko, um, the guy who created it at a conference. We were, and it was, it was so serendipitous because we didn't even talk. Like I have a thing where I don't talk about tech at tech conference, like at, at tech conference parties. Like I'm like, look, let's save the tech talk for the conference days. But like, if we're having dinner, let's just talk about whatever we like in life. Um, so I was talking with Mishko about like ketogenic diets, so like how we eat meat and lose weight, right? Um, and through the course of this natural conversation about health, fitness, and food, he's like, by the way, I'm working on this thing called Quick. I'm like, oh, cool. Tell me about it. And he, like, we had this, like, really long conversation about it. And I was like, whoa, man, that's awesome. And now, like, you know, Zeta is going to build an app that that shows how you can use Zeta as a database and all this. And I learned a lot about Quick, but not online. Uh, so I, I do agree with you and even relate to that. Um, similar with, with, with in-person, like, local meetups. Like, we have a React Berlin meetup. I live in Berlin. Um, and the first one, um, when the COVID restrictions started to kind of ease up a little bit, dude, like there was people like outside the front door, like crouched on the sidewalk, like just like every, it was, the venue was far over capacity. We had windows open and everything. It was, it was, you know, COVID sensitive, but like, I've never seen a meetup that full before in my life, um, to, to, to kind of attest to what, what you're saying with we're hungrier uh, for it. I definitely see that as well. You know, and this is usually spicier than a question that I ask here, but I, I, I was wondering about this recently because I was seeing updates and I wonder if it was always this way. And I think to some extent it was, but, you know, there's always been a lot of talk about um, speakers at conferences and the invited speakers and just the DevRel industry in general, right? A big part of DevRel is to speak at conferences, to, to, to evangelize your, your technologies and to reach out and build communities. And that makes total sense. But there's always been this conversation I think going on is that how do people break into this if they're not in, in not in DevRel or they're they're just technical in general and so sometimes you know you might see a lineup of announced speakers at, at, at a speaker conference and it's you know DevRel at this place and DevRel at that place and is 
is that changing to any degree? Because I think one of the things that people thought about with the online space is like, oh, wow, this democratization of uh, conferences and meetups, because now you, you don't have to be in this, you don't have to, you don't have to travel, it doesn't have to worry about budgets, you can just host events and anybody can talk and have that same reach. And I'm wondering if part of what we're seeing is just the surge of people who hadn't been able to get out, being able now to get out and and applying and, and, and things like that, or if this is the way it always was. I guess, do, do you sense any change in that? Or maybe just the DevRel industry in general being more popular and populated and more mature than it was three, four, five years ago, certainly, um, till now? Yeah, uh, you bring up a really good point and a really good question, because it's, it's true. Like, Ken, Ken Wheeler, a really good friend of mine, uh, a man I respect um, a lot, um, he tweeted recently, um, by recently, I mean, like a couple months ago. Um, and he said, um, hey, do you all remember when conferences was just us showing off cool stuff we built? And, and, and he, you know, he makes the comparison. Now it's just a bunch of developer advocates trying to sell you stuff. Um, and I'm like, bro, this is so real. Like, like this is why I respect and, and, and really like Ken is because he just tells it like it is. Um, no, in, in 2018, before the pandemic, conferences were different um and they were different good because like i remember a talk about like somebody built something with augmented reality that really isn't a product or a software as a service or a serverless database or it's just like here's a thing i built with javascript i didn't even know you could do this with javascript boom um that's how it used to be um, and that, that's how to some degree it still is like jsconf budapest this year had a talk about some like like lucky his name is one of the best talks there about nine ways to crash a drone with JavaScript. And he's just like talking about how he can fly a drone with JavaScript using a banana as a controller. <laughs> and it was like, okay. it was bananas. But that gave us kind of nostalgia of like, wow, most of the talks used to be like this. Um, so it's still there to some degree, but now like DevRel as a, as a field of work has matured. I think you're right, has matured a lot to the point where it's its own thing. It's the next level of specialization. Like yeah. back in the day, we had we had webmasters, right? And then we just had web developers. Um, yep. And then, you know, specialization started to emerge, like front-end, like back-end, like DevOps. And so those have been around for a while. We have a ton of front-end, back-end, whatever. And I feel like the next specialization is is DevRel. It's currently where the hype is. Um, and, and it's nice, I guess, that that's recognized. But at the same time, it's it's kind of like Web three. I'm here in this talk telling. I'm here in this podcast telling you, um, DevRel is like Web three. This is going to get some, 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 <laughs> some on Twitter. No, but I think it is like Web three in that it's very young, um, and because it's young, there's a lot of room for mistakes and misinformation. And I think this is where I personally, in my day to day work, try to be careful, because even kind of what you said, right? Like it's now there's a lot of DevRel people at conferences and. You know, part of the job is to evangelize your product. Um, that's something I have a huge issue with. Um, in fact, internally, the team I run at Zeta, um, I have—I don't have a lot of like hard lines and strict rules. I'm not like that. But one of the hard lines that my team will hear from me if they cross is is no selling. Um, we we are not a sales team. We might be because I don't even I'm not even comfortable calling us an evangelist team because evangelism is kind of a euphemism for sales if we're being real um, but I, I maintain since day one that for DevRel um, the stage is a sacred place for education and not evangelism it's for education and not sales um, so when we do a talk um, it's not so much like hey here Zeta is great use it it's more like here's how the internals of Zeta are built from an engineering perspective, so you can learn something. It's it's about teaching. It's about education. It's not about sales. It's I often tell people it's it's DevRel and not DevSell. You know, it's like it's Ooh, it's about there we uh, go. It's about the relationship. It's in the name. Um, so that's kind of I see the industry going wrong in this way. Um, and I hope it doesn't become the majority because I've been to, I do, I've been to a lot of conferences this year and, and that like more often than I'd like, I'd see a talk that's literally like, Hey, this framework's awesome. Use it, which isn't really helping the conference attendees who paid $500 to come there because then they're probably going to need to get buy-in and so on. I feel like they'd, they'd be better serviced learning how something is built educationally. 
Um, and it doesn't help the organizers because then the attendees are unhappy. And it doesn't help the speakers too because they don't really... Like for me as a speaker, I feel way better if I know I taught someone something that's going to take them a long way in their career versus I got a new customer. I would feel cheap if I got a new customer. So I feel like the selling thing doesn't really help anyone. And I'm hoping the industry corrects. But that's you're right. I think that's one way we've kind of changed and how DevRel is maturing. And I think it should be, again, reiterated that uh, Tejas is the Director of Developer Relations at Zeta uh, and that we at, at both Modern Web Podcast and this dot love developer relations. Uh, we have so many friends in the developer relations space. So certainly not saying anything about anybody in developer relations. Um, it's just an interesting effect of of conferences. And I think um, this is why local meetups can sometimes be so great uh, is because you don't quite have sometimes the same pressures uh, that you do. But it would be a fascinating topic for another day to just talk about the the interesting behind the scenes uh, realities of conferences because the, the economics of them, the organization of them, the effort it takes is very difficult. And this trade-off between um, inviting the names that you know um, but you've seen uh, recently and getting those fresh faces is one that these conferences work so hard uh, is a balance that they work so hard to, to meet. So uh, this is not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination, but it is interesting to talk about uh, as I've started to see um, lineups for live conferences start to st start to roll out. And uh, very glad, though, that people are, are, are able now uh, to attend some of these conferences and excited maybe to uh, start looking into some for next year. So which which that's like, I think it extends your point, right? Because DevRel has been made so accessible because of the pandemic. It's, it's been an awesome consequence that there's so many people in DevRel now. Um, at the same time, I feel like th there's much needed a resource where people can learn um, about, you know, what is considered selling. Is that the purpose? What is, you know, where's the line basically between education and evangelism? And like, we need resources, I feel like. Um, and who knows, I might start a company that provides those. We'll see. Um, well, I think that's a, a move for us to transition over to talking about databases, because this is another topic that uh, is is super interesting. And I think, honestly, I, I've i lost a little bit of where the conversation is, because, you know, a number of years ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago, so much of the conversation was around, should you use a SQL database or a NoSQL database? Which ORM, sort of object relational model, are, are you going to be uh, using uh, or library are you going to be using? And... I feel like you get less of those conversations today, but sometimes the uh, arguments about what library to use are no less passionate or any less dogmatic. So I guess to start us off, I'm kind of curious where the state of the pain points or the conversations that you're hearing from developers are when they talk to you about you know, their experiences, either, you know, Greenfield deciding what database to use in a brand new project, or, you know, trying to figure out how to move forward with an app built on top of one or many uh, legacy databases. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, what I keep hearing both Greenfield or existing from developers is like, I wish this stuff would get out of my way so I can build my app. Like that's like universally, you can quote, I can quote Kitza from uh, Sizi dot app about that like he just he's just like I, can i have databases be a solved problem so then i can build my browser <laughs> you know um I've, I've heard of teams like um companies similar to like tinder or uber that are like listen i'm making a dating app why am i spending six months figuring out database infrastructure like this is a common so that's the problem it's and and part of that is you know do we go with no sequel or my sequel or your sequel or whatever um and another part of that is like okay but then we're going to need more than just a date. We're going to need a search engine. How do we, do we use Algolia? What's the story? And then, you know, there's, oh, we're going to need some type of analytics dashboard. Do we go with like Grafana? Like it's just, it's never ending. And the wheel is so often reinvented. Dude, I've, I've had many tech jobs. I've worked at Spotify, at G2i, um, at, at multiple places. And and we have, re I've reinvented this wheel myself. Um, in engineering roles across so many companies. So that's the biggest pain point, I think, is like, how about um, the database, the search engine, the analytics, the things that make up a traditional like data platform, how about that's just solved once and then companies, instead of hiring like a team and paying all the salaries to maintain those for new companies with maybe not so much money in this economy, how about they just use something that's either free or like $30 a month, right? That's that's kind of what I'm hearing. Um, and coincidentally, that's basically what Zeta is doing. 
or not so coincidentally. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that. I guess my question for you is from your perspective is, you know, we get this conversation a lot when it comes to front-end frameworks. Well, should I use React? Should I use Angular? Should I use Vue? Should I use Felt? Should I use whatever else? And a lot of times the answer is you can use any of them. They're mature. They're fully featured. They may work differently for your team. Uh, they may work better for libraries that you would like to use for your app. But realistically, within some bounds, you're probably okay with any of them. They solve similar problems in similar ways. I, I guess I hesitate on some sense to, to, to say the same thing about databases because I've been on teams where we were handed in a database technology. We said, we sold this to the client. You have to use this database, but you have to work in this problem space. And it was not suited. The database was not suited for that problem space. And you end up reinventing concepts that exist in other da databases inside of the database you were handed. So on some level, I think people do want that, but but there are meaningful differences, aren't there? So how, how I guess, how do you manage that idea that there are meaningfully meaningful differences in how databases operate and are structured, uh, but at the same time, I guess people don't really want to have to care about it. They kind of just want to tell you what problem they have and you to give them the right type of database has the right type of properties. Yeah, so this that's an excellent question, Rob. I, I feel like there's you I love how you drew the parallel as well with like UI libraries um, and databases. I think this is I think fundamentally people want a system like a declarative system like React, like Terraform for the for the DevOps space, like Kubernetes even, to some degree where you describe like, hey, this is the state I want um, in some type of JSON, YAML, whatever. Um, and then like the software figures it out, right? And, and brings your system to the state that you describe, the declarative state. Um, and I feel like that, if that existed for a database, that would be great because that would then facilitate also developers not having to think about specifics while also thinking about what concerns them. So for example, you just mentioned like, you know, you're, you had to use a certain database because something was sold or whatever. Even though you had to use a certain database, you would still have constraints, right? You'd probably want something that's maybe strongly consistent or eventually consistent, but available. Like cap theorem is like the database term, right? Do you, do you prioritize consistency or availability? Which one? Um, and oftentimes that's where the bulk of the decisions are. But how cool would it be if you had such a database that was like, I don't know, I can do both. Just tell me your constraints, right? Um, and that's kind of what, what we're trying to do is, is just give developers something where they come to us with a bunch of constraints and it, depending on what you want, you get your data needs solved. Um, that doesn't exist, but we like that doesn't exist as far as we can tell anyway, but but we'd like it to. This is again effectively just removing this reinvention of the wheel. Um, about the UI libraries, you did mention you know you can use any and, and that's all well and good. It's true. Um, I feel like it would be remiss though if I didn't shout out Svelte for being like the the exception to the case because it's not even a library; it's just a compiler. Um, and objectively, like on paper, the benefits of Svelte far outweigh the others. Although yes, you could do the same thing with, <laughs> with the other. Well, and you mentioned Quick. I mean, I'm very excited with the early uh, things that people uh, have been saying in, in, in their testing of Quick. It's 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 still young, um, you know. But uh, you know, we we are very excited about the new frameworks, and it's not that they are not different. They are sometimes very different in their trade-offs. Yes. And I think, if anything, what's been really exciting about the last couple of years in UI frameworks has been the degree to which they have, as teams, embraced this now. Um, yes. And you see this with React. Everybody wants React to be something. That, that they want it to be. They want it to be more Svelte-like. They want it to be more whatever. And the React team, to their credit, has said, we want it to be what we want it to be, <laughs> what we think the future of web development is. And for all of its flaws, but for all of its benefits. And if you have problems like we think the problems of the future will be and the problems that we face on a day-to-day -day basis, then React will be best for you. If not, perhaps one of the others. To me, that's a very interesting case. But unfortunately, maybe a few years down the road, we'll find ourselves in the database solution where now we have the same problem where we don't remember which framework is the best for any particular type of problem. So, uh, but, you know, that is an interesting part of UI frameworks. They're not exactly the same. They are very meaningfully different. Uh, which um, that's also the case. I mean, with, with, I think, kind of pulling on the thread of similarity, um, did serverless databases specifically, to some degree, will let you do the same thing. Like I could use... MongoDB Atlas, 
Um, I could use AWS Aurora. I could use Zeta. I could use PlanetScale. And like, you know, at the very basics, they, they let me store data and query it via some type of endpoint. Um, and so then, you know, the, the, and I can, I can literally build an app with all of these. Um, the only difference is some will give me a different degree of consistency than the others. And there's something to be said for like my data model and the way I schema, if I, if that's a word, my data. But like if in terms of somewhere to store and retrieve data, everything works. I can do the job with everything. So then kind of like with the UI libraries, um, it becomes more about the cherries on top than about the, the bare essentials. Like you can build a web UI with React, with Vue, with whatever, but what does React give you on top of just building UI that, that Vue doesn't and vice versa, right? And that's I think that's the space we're in. Absolutely. You know, there are a couple different types of things. I don't know if you call them exactly databases. I, I'll be honest, I don't know. One of them is sanity, and I don't know really what to call sanity. But <laughs> another one I've played with is, is Prisma. And so two things that I'm sort of identified as being sort of key of, of different database technologies that have sort of caught the attention of myself and others as well um, are, you know, schemas and the ability to define schemas in code and to yeah. avoid some of the complexity. Again, as you were saying, abstract a little bit away of the underlying technology, be it SQL or document, but just simply to say that these two things are related to each other um, and connected in some way and allowing the underlying implementation to move forward. I guess I'll stop there first and I'll come back to the to the other feature that I think is so important. You know, what do you feel about this? And, and I guess how does how does Zeta handle this? Yeah, um, I, I love that you kind of mentioned. I don't know what how to classify sanity because um, because a lot of people I hear this a lot. My coworker and friend Attila has a great blog post on on Smashing Magazine about about exactly this. He's talking about databases and he's like, listen, a headless CMS, aka sanity, um, or even a CMS, a content management system, fundamentally works as a database. Like it will store your content, so it's like a database with extra stuff. Right. Um, so I, I like that. So I consider Sanity a CMS, among other things. And part of that is having a data layer. Prisma, similar. Um, Prisma actually isn't, I don't consider Prisma a database because Prisma works with the database. So it's, it's an ORM. Um, so, you would, so you would typically use Prisma with like Zeta or PlanetScale or something to give you a nice ORM, an object relational layer. Um, and then, you know, give you a nice type safe um, TypeScript thing where you can safely interact with your database. Maybe you can have a cache in front of it and like it, it can give you a lot of power. Um, Zeta is similar. Um, so you can conceptually think of Zeta as like Prisma plus planet scale. Like it's like two of these like smooshed into one. It's, it's, a, it's well, actually it's more than that. I'm, I'm being reductionary and any CTO of Zeta listening to me now, <coughs> Tudor <coughs> is going to, uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. No, uh, but so it's, like Prisma plus PlanetScale, plus Algolia, plus Grafana. That's the full Zeta suite, exactly. So it's it's a database, uh, a way to store data with something like Prisma. So we create our own like type safe client that you can use um, to interact with Zeta safely. Um, that's the Prisma piece. It comes with a search engine um, with like, it's not like a database search engine. It's like a full like, you can choose typo tolerance and say this is more relevant than that and boost certain things. And um, and in addition to the search engine is like a full-on like OLAP, like online anal analytics engine um, thing as well. So you can kind of get into the nitty gritty of why is this slow? How can I make this faster? So it's an analytics engine as well. Um, so yeah, in, in, in a way, the, the space is saturated with products like Prisma and Sanity. Um, Zeta tries to kind of combine all of those, not Sanity, but... but um, Prisma, PlanetScale, Algolia, and Grafana um, to give developers like, because you know what the, the problem we solve, right? Is people wrangling these things together over and over and over and over again, reinventing the wheel effectively. Um, and it's like, hey, what if there was a product that just gave you analytics, search, data storage, and uh, like a type safe client for free? Um, and that's kind of how it fits into that. 
So I know I watched a video introduction, and one of the things that you showed off in the video was sort of a graphical uh, definition, schema definition of, of bringing out maybe tables or I don't know what the correct objects, <laughs> entities, uh, and then, you know, defining fields in, in this UI and then connecting them, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with different um, uh, keys and things of this nature. And then I think in the documentation, I saw this piece about schemas. And are these meant to be no code, low code versions of that piece, and you just kind of pick whichever is the level of specificity you need. Is I know there's not going to be an answer to which is better, but like I guess my idea is why support all three of these things? Can they? Can you interact in all three spheres? Can you do some um, definition in the code and then do some piece in the graphical portion? Can you kind of explain how these relate to one another? Yeah. What were the three pieces you were talking about? Just so I can. Oh yeah. So sorry. So. I guess when I was saying that, I was saying no code, low code, and high code. But like the 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 two big things I was seeing was this idea of um, uh, of defining it in this this UI piece that you you had had in this video of um, sort of showing these entities on screen and then adding keys. And then when I looked in the documentation, it talks about having kind of like schemas inside of code. And I was just, I didn't know if these two things were exclusive exclusive of each other, yeah. whether they could somehow pair with each other or introspect into one another in some way. I was just kind of curious how that, how that's set up. That's such a, that's brilliant. Um, and it also gives us some, some ideas of how we can answer that for everybody, um, like in the docs or something. But so, so the answer is, um, we were actually, so, you know, Zeta is a young company. We've been around for like a year and we talked a lot about like public, like messaging and what do we tell people? And we finally settled on this, this line of think data, not databases. But we, we toyed with the idea of, of doing something like start small scale, some scale infinitely or some, something like this. Um, to answer your question, you can interact with Zeta however you want, however you're comfortable with. So like for people who you know, probably do most of their work with content marketing. Um, it's a, you can interact with it in a way that feels exactly like Excel or some spreadsheet. Um, if you're building like an application and you're doing data science with Zeta as your data store, um, you can interact with it purely from code. So high code, um, literally just like make a fetch call, get back your data predictably. Um, so there's a spreadsheet like UI that that is well suited to like people who maybe aren't so high code, but still want to add value. There's the the type safe TypeScript and Python and other language clients that you can use. Um, and there's also a command line interface. So you can basically, to answer your question, you pick what you're comfortable with, which is, so this is something I've been telling people at booths, at conferences as well. They're like, so Zeta, what is that? Is it a database company? And I say, kind of, it's more a developer experience company than a database company. And so if you're a developer, we want you to be able to choose an experience that you're comfortable with. CLI, sure. Web UI, sure. API, whatever you want. Um, and, and try to make each path you choose, either the spreadsheet UI or the TypeScript client, make that as comfortable as possible. So I'd say by and large, our, our main angle is developer experience above and beyond even like a database. And we're learning a lot from Vercel in this space because they do a phenomenal job of, of you know, if you want to deploy especially even back when it was just like Zeit, right? If you want to deploy something to the, to the cloud, you'd enter in your terminal the word now, enter, boom, it's, it's live. Um, and they do a lot of this with Next.js even uh, today. So I, I would even consider Vercel a developer experience company above and beyond like a hosting platform. Um, so that's kind of our vibe is like, so Vercel solves a lot of things for websites and Jamstack apps. They solve routing they solve deployment. But so far, there's not a company in the space that solves the developer experience of the data layer. And that is what we do. I think, you know, going back to the concept of sort of sanity, the, the piece and, and just headless CMSs, I guess, in general, is one of the biggest issues that I encounter a lot when working for clients uh, and when they want some sort of app that's that's has data is that um, they don't want developers to control the data. Um, they need to enter it. They need all of their staff to enter it. They need random people to enter it. And they don't always go through an a, a UI that you create. Or often they don't want to have to pay for you to build fancy UIs on top of databases. And that's where I think some of these sort of headless CMSs paired, you know, again, crossover with databases. Um, I, I know you all have a graphical way to edit 
now that makes it feel very uh, like a spreadsheet. Um, what is your thoughts just in general of this move towards tools like Sanity, which try to help create sort of, again, low-code or automated or schema-driven uh, editing UIs with the ability to override? Is that something that y'all are pursuing? Is that something that maybe you'd be looking to one of these other tools to be to, to integrate with and provide? Kind of, you know, your thoughts on this in general. Yeah, that's a good question. I think Zeta is fundamentally, by and large, for builders. And, and you know, hearing this, you might go like, builders, what does that even mean? Like construction work? Like we keep it at that abstract for a reason. Because like you said, random people in an organization can build like through platforms like Sanity. And, and we want to enable them. Like if somebody is starting, like, like let's, use, let's use Tinder, for example. Someone is starting a dating app um, and they don't know how to work with databases, but they are great at like Svelte, right? Um, then, you know, when it comes time to choose a database, we want to enable that builder to build a database without spending six months on NoSQL or MySQL. Um, so builder who maybe isn't as experienced with databases, sure. Builder as a marketing person who doesn't know how to code, sure. Also builder as like Dan Abramov, JavaScript, Ninja, whatever, sure, right? So it's it aims to be the best developer or the best experience with databases for builders, anybody who wants to build something, um, regardless of experience with databases and search engines is kind of what we want to do. And so my thoughts about Sanity being this platform that's low code, no code, I think that's awesome, personally, because like, I feel like the tech industry in general is, is becoming the sole industry on the planet, it's taking over the world. Um, and the more people we get through the door of the tech industry, the better the world will be. So I think Sanity is doing a great job of like facilitating that. So maybe I'm being a bit of a cynical person here, and I don't like to be. I'm usually a pretty optimistic person. But one of the traps that I think that I'm falling into with tools like this that are so simple, tools like Prisma, like Zeta, like Sanity, is I'm able to prototype something very quickly, but I'm really nervous that if I go to production, I'm trapped or I'll hit that invisible ceiling, or I won't be able to get to the nitty gritty, or I won't be able to make the pivot from my early stage startup to my unicorn status. And I'm just gonna be Twitter fail wailing for months as I re-architect my whole platform. Now again, maybe this is because I just haven't learned to fully trust tech companies yet, but for people like me that feel like these types of tools, especially ones that try to abstract away entire parts of the platform or the, the stack from you, they're worried that that's great for the first month, but I'll immediately start running into issues when I grow beyond it. What what do you say, both as for Zeta, but also just with this class of tools in general and the experience that you've had uh, working with them? That's so good. I, I think all of these companies um, toe the line between two poles, between control and convenience. Um, and really the question with an abstraction like Zeta or others is how much control are you willing to give away uh, for the sake of convenience, right? And it's a, it's a, it's a scale. Um, I, I feel like React does this really well where you give away a lot of the control to React like, hey, set state, make it happen. Um, and React gives you a good, a good amount of convenience in exchange. So we try to hit this balance with, with, with Zeta. Um, I think... We try to to mitigate like this fail whale thing that you're talking about. I think we we try to we do this in a couple of ways. One, we're just really explicit about limits, so it's free up to a certain point. Um, but here's another scenario about your fail whale thing that that I feel like you didn't address, but needs to be, is um, what if you actually grow really successful in production, and then you have a billion users and you start to get overwhelmed, but also your builds are like, oh my goodness, I owe a million dollars now because no, you know, this AWS nightmare. So we don't do that. Um, we we kind of think about this because our, our mission is people, um, if they're coming from Greenfield, they start whatever scale they're at, small, and then you know they grow with us. And so we have this um, free tier that is quite generous. I think it's like 750,000 rows or something like this. Um, not final, so what, take what I'm saying and go check zeta.io at some point, but um, it's pretty generous. And after that, we have this notion of like units. Um, and a unit is, you know, you get this rate limit of this many requests a second, you can store this much data and so on. 
and we allow you to buy as many units as you want. But we're also quite um, transparent about this is the ceiling. And after this, you're going to have to jump to the enterprise tier and we'll do something bespoke for you. Um, and all of that, you can see that like at day one. Um, secondly, I think the the other problem with, with you know, failing on Twitter fail whale is, is, is lock-in where you're like, oh, I don't like this service anymore. I want to go use PlanetScale or whatever. Um, where, where, and we don't really like, we don't, we're not interested in holding people hostage. Um, so just like any respectable database would give you a CSV import, we're more than happy to give you a CSV export or a SQL dump or whatever it is you want. Um, because like at the end of the day, if somebody doesn't want to be on Zeta, we don't want them to be on Zeta. Like it's, it's, it's a tool, not a prison. (laughs) It's it's so funny you mentioned that too because portability is something that is so appealing to people that are evaluating different tools even if it'll never be used because you know sometimes again no matter how much you try to be not bound too tightly to the platforms you're on anybody that's ever tried to go out there and say has heard this objective from business go use AWS but we don't want to be tied to AWS if we get a better contract with Google Cloud we want to be able to just snap our fingers and now we're on Google Cloud and the amount of engineering it takes to not be bound to the platform you're using is immense and almost never worth it. So, uh, you know, you may never change platforms, but that data portability always is such so comforting when you're evaluating that you're, you're not going to lose five months of data or have to do some sort of expensive thing or keep a legacy version of something running while you have your new system and you have to now worry about sourcing data from both places. Uh, you know, I think that's another thing that you all uh, deal with, which I think is super interesting, is on the import side. So for people that already find themselves in that situation, but are now coming to Zeta, you know, addressing this, I, I, I just hadn't heard that many people really make importing that effortless. I think some people and some developers just treat that as a sunk cost that you just know if you get locked into a database somewhere, that thing is running on that machine in that guy's office for the next 50 years. Uh, and, and, you know, goodness help us when the, the cleaner comes through and needs to plug in the vacuum cleaner. You know, everybody's heard those those stories. So I think that's super interesting, too, this idea of being useful to help people get into Zeta, not just, um, <clears throat> you know, not just worry about giving them that ability to get their data out. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a bit selfish capitalism wise, because like we have a vested interest in that, right? Like if we help people get in, we get money eventually probably so it's worth it but i feel like the more controversial thing is helping people get their data out because then we lose money and a lot of companies sure. will be like how could you do that? like aws there's no way they're going to help you migrate to google cloud <laughs> yeah, right not, yeah. and that's fine we just don't want to be that way um i do have to shout out though a comp- there's an entire company that this is their entire business um which i think is oh. awesome um and and i have a lot of respect for it. it's called airbyte you may have heard of airbyte um where they are a ELT, so Extract Load Transform Platform, where they will literally allow you to like pipe data from Airtable to PlanetScale. Let's click a button, all your stuff's moved. Um, and we're kind of working with them to see if there's something we can do with Zeta to help people move stuff around from data source to Zeta, to Zeta from something else, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I like that this is happening because I don't like it when companies and people are held hostage. Yeah, I've worked with them before when people are using different like CRMs. Sometimes they'll uh, people will come and build bespoke connectors between your systems and those, and uh, and and pipe things around. You know, they're like almost like data aqueduct creators. <laughs> uh, super interesting uh, companies, definitely. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> the the interesting sort of other thing that I saw in the documentation of Zeta that I've seen in some of the other thing other tools that I've been using a lot recently is the embrace of the concept of branching and Git style paradigms. I think this is super interesting, both because the feature is valuable to be able to test out uh, new schemas and new additions to a database and and not just do them right on production right away uh, and to version them in that way. But I always thought it was interesting that um, we adopted the Git paradigms. I mean, they are pretty universal nowadays, at least in web development terms. Um, I guess I'm curious, is, is... is that that should we be hung up on, on those on those paradigms? Is it just that because people are used to that? Um... Or is it a fundamentally different feature than, you know, migration scripts that other, you know, tools have used in the past in the ways that they've handled uh, mutations and migrations of databases? Yeah, so this this is really interesting because it's quite serendipitous that I joined Zeta. It wasn't on my, I didn't even, I was employee number six. I didn't even know the company existed. But um, previously, I used to work at a company called G2I. 
um, I was in charge of, of engineering and we had this problem where we had a, multiple developers working on the same Postgres database um, and kind of just like migrating left, right and center. Um, and, and yes, we had migrations files, we had a flow, but sometimes it's easier to just log into the database and change something, right? I mean, come on. and so it happened quite a bit that our production database had a different schema than our staging database, but they developed against the staging database and things got out of sync. And more often than not, my database migrations, even if versioned properly and such, um, are really hard to like test. How do you test a migration without, with, with real production data? You, um, where do you run them? How do you, so there's so many questions. And so I heard about Zeta and it's like, hey, we're building a thing like Git where you just check out a branch of your database, do whatever you want, send traffic to it from your app to validate that it works. And if it works, open a migration request, like a pull request, it's reviewed line by line by your team. And then when you merge it, it's merged without any downtime from for your app. I was like, whoa. So I built this system actually at G2i and it worked. So how it worked at G2i is when somebody opened a pull request, it would literally give them like a new database and, and check what's the difference and then you know orchestrate these changes. I built this, it wasn't, it was more hacky than Zeta's because it was just one company, but Zeta is building this for every company, right? So it needs to be reliable. And I think there's huge demand for that because then you have a database that can evolve but more importantly, and I think this is something that people don't get with branches as much as I'd like, is not only is it branchable, it becomes undoable. Ooh, that's, I wish I could undo a bad migration easily, just like command Z. Um, and that is something I'm really excited about. And I, I definitely see a need for it because every team that I've seen that works with databases, even at Spotify, um, we're just scared. We're scared to bring down something with a poor migration, so. Yeah, it's, I guess what was interesting to me is that tools like these are leveraging what are these um, metaphors or these systems that developers use, um, and maybe less so uh, the database administrator role uh, and people that have taken that road. So what's curious to me, and maybe this is sort of indicative of the conversation we've had, is that we really are sort of maybe bringing new people into this role and not yes. necessarily just building tools to migrate in some sense, database administrators and people that were pre predominantly using these tools right on the bare metal uh, and bringing them in and building tools that they're explicitly meant to use. Not, not that they can't use it, uh, but that the tools aren't necessarily geared towards moving them over uh, to this tech stack per se. Is that, yes. is that accurate? Is that too far? I think it's, it's on the money. And I think it's, it's just as accurate as saying, um, you know, React enables people who aren't comfortable with like document.appendchild to to become like competent and valuable UI engineers, it's the same. So it's like you create an abstraction that then invites more people in, um, and I think that's exactly what we're doing. Is is like of course no database is branchable, not even Zeta. You, this notion of branching a database isn't isn't really a thing, but through the abstraction because we hide behind a REST API, conceptually we do create branches. Right, and so we can speak that language because of the abstraction, similar to how React will say things like, um, "We diff the DOM, uh, the the physical That's DOM." That's true. Yeah, um, yeah. Like we use the abstraction plus metaphor to create a more welcoming experience and invite more people. And absolutely, I think you're spot on. Well. It's a shame that we've arrived pretty much at the end of our conversation here, because I would, for a second, love to have dived, you know dive into this idea of how much we have warped web development around the central metaphor of Git, because I think you're absolutely correct. I was having this conversation with people recently. I was like, hey, some of you haven't felt the pain of visual source safe or don't even know subversion, don't know, <laughs> you know, mercurial, like that used to be many different choices. Uh, Git sort of swallowed the whole ecosystem and <clears throat> GitHub became the synonymous term with Git. And even that is sort of interesting. I, I just think as an industry, that would be really funny to unpack, but we won't have time to, to do that full service now. But, uh, you know, it is it is really fascinating that sometimes <clears throat> we uh, underestimate the degree to which some developers truly came up fully in these metaphors and have never seen the outside of them. Not that they need to, to be real developers or effective developers, but that we can sometimes take for granted um, that some, some developers honestly don't know a world of development that doesn't revolve around Git and GitHub, yeah. which is 
interesting for people, especially seniors, to, to realize as you're relating to and explaining concepts to people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, also, there's a lot of developers now I'm seeing who are really good at React, but don't know JavaScript. Um, and this, I think, is pretty cool um, because people can get jobs and earn the tech green. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah. All right. Well, as I said, we are kind of arriving at the end of our conversation here. So for people that are interested in hearing more from you, uh, finding out what you're up to or finding out more about Zeta, can you tell them how they can get involved and where they can find you? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at TejasKumar underscore. Good luck spelling that. I hope you get it right. Probably won't. That's fine. Um, but I mean, Zeta is at Zeta. That's X-A-T-A. It's like data, but with an X, Zeta.io. Um, also on Twitter at Zeta. Um, and, you know, I invite and encourage people to give it a try, um, play with it and see if you want to build your company on it. We try to optimize for a good experience. So if not, let us know in the Discord. Well, that's great. Yeah, definitely check it out. And if you have thoughts about uh, about Zeta, about databases, about the things that we talked about here, or the future or present of developer relations and conferences and meetups and all of that, uh, definitely make sure to reach out to us on Twitter. As Tejas said, you can reach him on Twitter at Tejas Kumar. That's T-E-J-A-S-K-U-M-A-R with an underscore at the end. And then you can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this conversation about developer relations, uh, the state of web development, databases, and so much more. And we hope to see you next time. Thanks again. Come on. Peace. Come on, this podcast is sponsored by This.Labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. Show for you.